Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Almost every day there's news of lawmakers, school boards, or corporations creating new rules about transgender citizens. In Montana, a trans lawmaker was barred from participating in the political process after speaking against a law to deny gender-affirming care to minors. More than a dozen states have similar new laws. Today we'll get the perspective from trans advocates about the new trends and what's likely to follow. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. It took four tries, but a Pacific data port satellite finally blasted off from a SpaceX launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, on Sunday night. Three, two, one, engines full power, and liftoff of Viasat 3. Go Viasat, go Falcon Heavy. Pacific Data Port hopes to serve tribes in remote parts of Alaska, where broadband service has been unavailable or cost prohibitive. For three days, the flight was delayed due to the elements and technical issues. But on Sunday, a rocket called Falcon Heavy successfully carried the satellite into space. Brian Murkowski, a spokesperson for Pacific Data Port, says the Aurora 4A will be a game changer. Remote communities will have effectively the same capabilities and services that that you would get in Seattle or San Francisco or, or LA. And furthermore, it won't cost you an arm and a leg. It will be competitive. The Aurora 4A is positioned higher above the earth and looks down directly on Alaska, which provides some new options for broadband and cell service customers. Pacific Data Port says Aurora 4A is a first of its kind, a micro-geostationary satellite, smaller in size but with advanced technology that gives it more data capacity. In the days leading up to the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, Yurok tribal leaders will be participating in a series of events starting Tuesday, including candlelight vigils, testimonies, a flower drop, and more at the California State Capitol to elevate tribally-led efforts to resolve the ongoing crisis. For more information on the events, please visit yuroktribe.org. A couple public health studies are trying to prevent childhood obesity in tribal communities. Emma Vandernindy of the Mountain West Newsboro reports on their approaches. The Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health launched a study to see if providing water and educating mothers would help prevent early childhood obesity on the Navajo Nation. Every week, home health coaches talked with the moms about sugary beverages, breastfeeding, and other nutritional topics. Some families also received home deliveries of water. Leon Lynn Nelson is one of the home health coaches. She says one of the main challenges mothers brought up was how their moms spoiled their babies. There was a lot of conversation along of like how to have these conversations with your parent in a respectful way of, you know what, like this is my child. I want to I want them to be healthy. The results of the Johns Hopkins study were striking. The children of parents who received water and the teaching had a lower body mass index. Rontel Hale, a participant, says she can see improvement in her son due to the study. Doing these little lessons, it's a lot of help. It also helps not just you, but also helps your little ones. Other groups have also looked into water-based solutions. A few years ago, the Notabagay III Foundation launched the Water First Learning Communities. It was a cohort of eight Native organizations focused on increasing water consumption. One group from the Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico did a school water challenge to encourage kids to drink fruit-infused water. Another group, the Tamaya Wellness Center in the Santa Ana Pueblo, found signs were the solution. 
it's really cool to see that they have like the sign, the su- no sugary sweetened beverages allowed in their center because then we're like, oh, like that, that has made an impact. That's Simone Duran with the foundation. Rolling out these projects may be slow, but she believes they have a ripple effect on the community. They are more willing to kind of make small steps, small changes. It's not going to happen, you know, overnight, the entire community is drinking water. (laughs) Hale has already shared her experience with her sister, so her kids can continue to grow healthy and strong, too. You still need that support of um, going to somebody. And that's where I would give her some of the lessons that were that were given to me. The researchers are expanding their studies and plan to take them beyond the Southwest reservations. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. This story is supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. After the Montana Speaker of the House censured State Representative Zoe Zephyr for comments she made on the House floor, the Montana American Indian Caucus issued a statement in support of the transgender lawmaker. The caucus mentioned it represents a people that endured a long history of discrimination and strongly denounced the censure. The caucus is mostly Democrats. The House majority are Republicans. Zephyr was admonished for what House leadership said was violating rules of decorum, speaking against a bill that would restrict gender-affirming care for minors. Montana is one of more than a dozen states imposing restrictions on transgender residents. In addition to laws over gender-affirming care, legislatures are enacting laws pertaining to bathrooms and access to sports. Today we'll hear from Native trans advocates about why so much recent attention has been directed towards trans issues. As always, we welcome listeners to the conversation. Share your comments and insights on transgender issues at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us now from San Antonio, Texas, is Stephanie Byers. She's a former Kansas State representative for District 86. She's Chickasaw and the first transgender Native American elected to any state legislature in the United States. Stephanie, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Good to be here. Joining us in our studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Maddie Jim. She's a trans advocate and she's Dene. Maddie, you've been here before. Welcome back to NAC. Yes, thank you for having me back. And speaking with us from Poplar, Montana, is Montana Wilson. She's the vice chair for Western Native Voice. She's Grovon, Assiniboine, and Sioux. Montana, thank you for joining us as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Stephanie, I'd like to begin with new you. Now, you were a member of the Kansas State Legislature when it was considering a trans sports law. Since then, there have been many more laws aimed at trans residents. What do you think is behind this push to create these laws? Who's pushing them? Why now? Why? Well, we believe that there is a conglomeration of national organizations that have pulled together to write this discriminatory legislation. So that's one of the reasons why no matter which state the bill shows up in, you see it's the same language. Um, it's repeated over and over again. They've shopped it out till they found people that will take it out. I think one of the things that's gone on is that we've seen our country shift in its acceptance of the LGBTQ community. We saw it shift with Obergefell, and people now know that, that same-sex couples exist, that they have the rights to be married, and it seems that we've kind of adapted that as part of our culture so that we're good with that. We also saw in uh, 2019 and the decision made in 2020 that um, the Bostick versus Clayton County, where it redefines on the basis of sex so it does include sexual orientation and gender identity, that's opened a doorway to this allowing greater acceptance of trans people by the majority of Americans. And this is kind of maybe like we saw with the Civil Rights Acts back in the 60s, kind of a knee-jerk reaction to those things, trying to shake things back to where they were instead of embracing the future as we go forward. Right, right. That whole knee-jerk reaction. Now, Stephanie, you were involved in an incident, and it attracted a lot of attention in which another lawmaker sent messages that indicated um, that person was uncomfortable having a trans woman in state politics. What came out of that? You know, the end result, of course, well, a lot of interviews. Um, I, I gave 14 interviews in the one week that it took place uh, with organizations across the United States. And one of the things that I noticed, too, is that she was somebody, like many of these people that push these bills, that lives their lives out of fear instead of living out of love and making decisions out of love. And so that's one of the things that I want to try to emphasize, that we need to figure out how we can love each other better instead of reacting in fear. The end result for her was that her party primaried her um, back in August in Kansas, and she lost. And so that there is a different representative now for her district. Um, ironically, although they got rid of the personality, they held on to all that hateful rhetoric and even amplified it in the Kansas legislature. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Now, Republicans are pushing these laws. Of course, Kansas, a conservative state, and you now live in Texas, which is also a very conservative state. What's the expectation there uh, about how people treat you on a daily basis? What's it like for you living in those, having been in two very conservative states? On a daily basis, people have been accepting of me. Um, very rarely do I have someone who is very negative. Uh, when it does happen, they are not just slightly negative, they are extremely negative. Um, and usually it's people that don't know me very well. Uh, down here in Texas, so far, that I've not had an experience where someone has been confrontational with me. Um, however, I understand that that's kind of unusual that uh, for trans activists, especially down here in Texas, that confrontation is almost way of life with what's going on. You know, even as we speak today, uh, they're debating in the Kansas in the Texas House regarding um, a ban on affirmative health care for trans youth. So it's definitely a state that's poised to also fulfill on these anti or these true discriminatory bills. Stephanie, I, I think it's pointed that you you shared that uh, when you do encounter pushback, it's it's often from people that that don't know you, and it just seems that at the heart of many of these these issues or, or these attacks against transgender citizens, 
is a general lack of understanding about trans issues and perhaps limited experience interacting with trans people. How do we address that? Well, I think that one thing that we need to do is make sure that we are educating the general public. As far as the legislators that bring these things in and push these legislation, they have heard. They know. They, they, they've read the, the statements. They know that the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychological Association, all major medical organizations in the United States support affirming medical care for trans people. They know this. They choose to ignore it. But they're so good at putting out the disinformation that the general public doesn't necessarily know what's true anymore. And mm-hmm. so we've got to make sure that we're putting out there what's really happening, what medical communities actually do say, and what the real impact this has on trans kids and their families as well, and trans adults and their families. That these bills are not innocuous. It's not even if we're a small population, the impact is tremendous. Now, for anyone listening today who might not be familiar with some of these terms we're discussing, Stephanie, can you please explain what exactly is affirming care? So affirming care, it depends upon um, the age group of what we're talking about. If we're talking about someone who's pre-adolescent, affirming care usually just involves uh, some simple counseling as well as letting the child express themselves socially so that they can can be who they are, uh, maybe grow their hair out longer, maybe cut it off shorter, wear clothes that are more fitting to the gender they identify with, and that's about it. Um, Mm -hmm. As they approach puberty, uh, then if they're a family who has some means, and most families do not, um, they may be offered uh, puberty blockers, which will pause puberty. Um, and in, contrary to what they'll, that you might hear, puberty blockers are safe. Um, they're mostly reversible. And, you know, so it just all it does is it stops the secondary sex characteristics from developing uh, until the child is at an age to make a decision. And these decisions are not made by the child alone. They are made in conjunction with the physicians, with the child's parents. Um, all together. Now, once they enter into puberty, they go on puberty blockers. That just pauses things. Uh, around 16 or 17, they may start on low-dose hormones of the, of the gender they identify with. Um, nothing severe, nothing drastic, but just enough to kind of ease in. And um, no gender-affirming surgeries at all until after they're 18. Um, and so after 18, then those things take place. So you hear a lot of disinformation regarding those things, saying that this is what's happening, but it's not. Um, we don't see that happening. We might see um, some type of, of top surgery, but that's still very rare. And even when it does happen, we understand, too, it's partially reversible. So it's not, like I said, as, as dire as what sometimes you hear uh, those people that are pushing this legislation state. Right, right. In, in terms like puberty blockers and some of these hormone treatments, I mean, they certainly get people's attention when you hear those terms used, especially when we're talking about young people under the age of 18. And I I just want to ask you, Stephanie, I mean, do you have any empathy for people? And I'm thinking specifically about maybe older Americans from earlier generations who might not necessarily be opposed to transgender issues, but it's just a lot for them to take in. Because anytime we as a society confront change, it can be a natural reaction to take a step back and question. You know, I think questioning is fine, but the questioning's gone on for a while. Research is there. And we've got the voices to tell you this is what the answers to these questions are. Those voices are the ones that are being masked out. Those voices are the ones that are being screened away so that it, it's almost like they're, they're intentionally trying to keep those older Americans in the dark on these things. Um, and even if you do bring out what these positions are from the major medical, medical associations, 
um, there's someone who will be out there and telling you that that's, that's not true, that that's wrong, that these groups are politicized groups, instead of thinking about them in terms of how they affect our health care. So it goes back to, to what you mentioned earlier, this need to educate people, to inform, to raise awareness. And I just want to ask, I mean, in what ways can, can that occur so that uh, some of the, because apparently there's a lot of misinformation out there uh, and people are just misconstruing information. So what can we do to make sure that uh, people have the facts, the right facts and the right information to make informed decisions? You know, I think that um, Fred Rogers and his program, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, made the best comment that, that sometimes when things are really scary, you have to look for the helpers. And so if we don't really understand, we need to look for the helpers. We need to look for those voices that do know what's going on. We need to turn to our, our medical associations and to our doctors and listen to what they have to say. And not just all of them, because we understand that there are, um, you know, some splinter groups out there of physicians that are anti-trans, but they don't represent the majority of physicians. They represent a small, very, very tiny minority. Um, and so we need to look at where the research is and, and look to sources like uh, Dr. Jack Turbin who's done extensive surveys and research on trans kids and trans adults, uh, you know, and look in, and see what's really happening there, what's being said, and open our eyes. You know, we hear all the time uh, about trans athletes, especially trans women athletes, dominating sports. And, yeah, we do have an NCAA champion with Leah Thomas, but her time in the 500-yard freestyle at the NCAA championships last year was the fifth slowest in the last six years. Um, okay. You know, so we, Stephanie, I'm sorry. We are going to have to take a break, but uh, definitely we're going to talk a lot more. We're going to talk uh, about trans athletes, and uh, I love that Mr. Rogers reference, by the way. But we do have to take a short break. Uh, we'll be right back. There's news that the Boy Scouts of America organization is reconsidering its long practice of appropriating dances, imagery, and other aspects of Native culture. They're asking members their stance on using Native regalia and traditions. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Is your state enacting laws aimed at transgender residents? Are you a transgender person yourself? Do you have transgender family members, friends, or co-workers? If so, what are your concerns about their rights? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. On the line now is Stephanie Byers first transgender Native American elected to any state legislature in the U.S. And Stephanie, before break, uh, you were talking about uh, transgender athletes competing in sports and, of course, the, the very high-profile swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania that won a national championship. Uh, please continue your thoughts. Well, what we were talking about was the fact that when we see these examples of trans athletes, 
the image is portrayed that somehow they are dominating sport. But when you actually take a, a, a 50 foot view of it, you find that they're not dominating sport. Um, they're just as competitive as anybody else. They may be an, an, elite, an elite athlete, but does their elite athleticism push them to where they have some sort of an advantage? And with Leah Thomas, we saw in the NCAA swim meets that when you compare the last, I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier, but the last five swim meets, hers is the fourth slowest time uh, to win the 500-yard freestyle. You know, And when you look at her compared to what's gone on in the United States historically in the 500-yard freestyle, she's like the ranked 60th swimmer in the U.S. on those things. And that's um, compared and so, to, to biological female swimmers. Exactly. Okay. You know, And you know, her times compared to Katie Ledecky, who's set every record in the 500-yard freestyle, um, she is considerably slower than Katie Ledecky, who is a biological female. Um, and and so, so there's a disinformation and a disconnect of trying to put that out there. Uh, they will say things in particular about Leah, about her being a mediocre male swimmer before she transitioned, but leave out that in her best event, she ranked sixth in the nation as a freshman. Um, those things, because we, you know, we understand if you're in swimming, it's not just one event, it's multiple events you compete in. Mm -hmm. And so you might be really good at one, but not so strong in another. And they're cherry picking the, the less strong events to say, this is what her time was as a male athlete. Um, so we see those things. And honestly, in my opinion, that's unimportant, whether a, a trans person wins, loses, or whatever in athleticism, because the idea behind this is not necessarily preventing something that's unfair as much as it is making sure that trans people are erased from the public limelight. Okay. Now, this is an issue, though, that it's, it's really a hot topic now, uh, trans athletes competing in sports. And yeah, I think, Stephanie, a lot of it has to do with just as Americans, we're just so obsessed with sports, right? And it seems like from what I'm seeing uh, on my side of it is you know, there's a lot of people that are like supportive of trans issues in a lot of cases. But when it comes to the sports thing, they take a step back and they're like, wait a second, uh, the idea of a, of a biological male uh, competing against a biological, it's just not fair. It's not fair. And, and yeah, you can excite examples of, of, of Leah Thomas's times, maybe not being up to par with some other elite swimmers, but uh, there's just a, a lot of people that are just like, wait a second here, this is kind of weird. Not quite sure I'm okay with this. I mean, what do you say to those people that are just still very much on the fence on that issue? Well, their eyes may just be opened to what has been happening. These issues have been, have been being dealt with for a couple of decades. Rules have been in place. Determinants have been in place. There have been the organizations that oversee sports who have worked on trying to keep fairness regardless. And the other thing, too, on top of this is that it, it's based upon some disinformation. You know, when you hear a study about uh, someone saying that the, the fastest Olympic runner uh, would finish 500 behind high school male athletes who run the same event, but no one compares what does it happen to compare to a trans athlete. Mm -hmm. Those comparisons are left out. It's almost like we're pushing out this idea of, uh, you know, these large male athletes that we would see, you know, in football or in basketball or some other of our major sports as being all of a sudden deciding to compete as women, and that's unfair. But the reality of it is, is trans women, like all women, come in a variety of sizes. They come with a variety of set of skills. And additionally, when we start talking about this athleticism, we completely turn the focus away from coaching. We turn the focus away from strategy. We, come, we turn the focus away from all those things 
that allows someone to be competitive who may not necessarily have the physical advantages of someone who doesn't. And so it's, it's intentionally designed to be misdirected and to keep people enraged and upset. Because um, then when you look at what's really going on, say, for instance, in Kansas, where they, the, the legislature just overrode the governor's veto on the transports bill. There are two girls in the entire state out of – I don't remember how many athletes, something like 120,000 athletes that are trans. And yet neither one of them has you know, got, a, got a showing of any kind as far as their <laughs> athleticism goes. Right. But yet that's, 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 that's dominated this legislative session, uh, and not just in Kansas. The same example can be said everywhere across the United States to the same these, these bills. Uh, the organization that is very much against trans women competing in athletics, um, save women's sports. At one point in time, they were asked how many trans athletes they had, trans female athletes they had identified across the entire United States. They said five. Interesting. You know, really interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, good point, Stephanie. Really appreciate that. We are going to pivot to another guest, but anybody listening now who has a thought or an insight with regard to trans athletes competing in sports, we'd love to hear it. 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Let's now go to our in-studio guest, Maddie Jim, trans advocate. Maddie, uh, thank you again for joining us today. And, and let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk more about what happens in different states. And you, of course, live in New Mexico and New Mexico is a state that hasn't seen the same push for restrictions on trans citizens like what we've seen in Kansas and Texas. In fact, lawmakers are even expanding protection. So tell us a little bit more. What is the atmosphere like for trans people living in New Mexico today? Um, I just want to say that I'm very thankful that I live in a state where I feel protected and accepted. And um, kudos to all the lawmakers who took the initiative to take into consideration our trans populations, our gender non-conforming and non-binary population in in our protections. So I've been I've been kind of like involved in some of the advocacy throughout the years, um, starting in the early the late nineties and the early two thousands in looking at some of the some of the bills that have been passed throughout the years. And um, fast forwarding to now like the two two bills that I, I wanted to mention were um, House Bill 7, which is the Reproductive and Gender, Gender Affirming Health Care Act, and then also the House Bill 207, which is the Human Rights Moderate, Moderate, Modernization Act. So with the Reproductive and Gender Affirming Health Care Act, that looks at language and protecting our reproductive rights, and then also looking at um, gender-affirming care and being protected in the state of New Mexico because we know that with other states, there are a lot of anti-transgender anti bills that are being um, introduced, especially within healthcare services. So we are protecting our trans populations here in the state of New Mexico. In the Human Rights Moder Modernization Act, um, we were just seeing an enhancement on the language to protect our, our LGBTQ populations, and this also including our trans populations. So some of the language um, that was looked at was expanding like existing definitions of sexual orientation and gender identity. So that includes like me, for instance, because I identify as a transgender woman. And and I, like I said, I feel comfortable living in a state where I, I feel protected. And we're starting to hear stories of, of families or people moving to different states to, because they have, they're have they living in a state where there's the, a lot of anti-trans um, bills that are happening. I know of a family who moved from Texas to New York 
because of that and just hearing more stories. And I was talking to a friend, Adrian Lawyer, who works for Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico and mentioned that there are conversations around people asking about moving to New Mexico um, and possibly doing that in the near future or so. So we're looking at a state, we're going to be a state where people are going to be looking at or moving to because of our laws um, that are that are here. And like I said, I'm very fortunate to live in a state like this and, and really um, concerns me for other states because of me being transgender, knowing how people treat us and what they've said about us and going through that. And I wanted to go back also to the conversation of sports. Like I was in sports in high school. I was in cross-country basketball and, and wrestling and so for me, looking back at that, because of not being accepted or, or really having fear that I really want to play volleyball or be on the, the girls' softball team and just not having that, having that opportunity as others have opportunities now. And we're still fighting that after, like, how many decades? And I've been out of high school since 1990. So it's been a while. So, so really looking back at that. Um, so, like, I... I, I sometimes look at how our state legislature um, looks at things. We've had so many lawmakers, um, representatives, and senators who have supported our population um, in the state of New Mexico. And like kudos to Marshall Martinez of Equality in New Mexico and Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico and others who were supporting and have been supportive and inclusive of our trans populations and organizations. So they've been the catalysts at the forefront who have been doing a lot of this work that enact these laws and bills for the state of New Mexico. And Maddie, this push to change laws and policies in other states that we're talking about that uh, bathroom, sports, healthcare, do you have any fears or concerns that, that some of those, um, those those lobbies will make their way to the state of New Mexico and what that might mean for transgender people such as yourself? Um, I, we've been fighting for a while, and I think for the state of New Mexico, if something comes up, we're going to rally. And I truly believe that our 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 citizens of New Mexico are going to rally. I believe we've had people like come in uh, from out, uh, out of state um, talking, talking about uh, the anti-trans bills or trying to give voice to to why it shouldn't be passed and stuff. So I'm thinking like, okay, if you're not from the state of New Mexico, why do you have a voice? <laughs> if you're not living in the state, so why are you getting a voice? So I think um, with somebody coming in to lobby who's from out of state, I think is like obsolete, shouldn't even be happening whatsoever. And what about on a, on a personal uh, basis? I mean, what's life like for you in New Mexico, just being out in public and living your daily life? Um, I... I do that every day. So um, part of this advocacy that I do, we also do um, trainings for service providers on how to how to work with na uh, native LGBTQ populations or even just trans populations and doing like TG 101 with, um, with organizations or entities or people who are needing that and talk a lot about that. So I'm very open about who I am as a trans person. And a lot of times people don't even know that I'm trans unless I, I disclose to them that I'm transgender. And sometimes I'm in conversations where they don't know whatsoever. So um, when they're asking, like, um, how many kids do you have or are you married? I'm like, okay, this person doesn't know. So I usually disclose and try to use that as an educational tool at that moment. And for me, I'm very out and open. I'm very confident. And I'm very assertive at times. So so when I get the opportunity to do that, I, I do that in, in those cases. And I've been confronted a few times, and I, I feel that I handle myself in a good way and know how to, how to approach 
things. And, and like Stephanie said, there's a lot of education that still needs to be done. People are misguided. People get the wrong information about things and they go on that. And they just continue to to give the wrong information. And there's this whole there's this whole topic on how what they feel of our, our population and, and how they look at it. So so me personally as a trans individual, just seeing the 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 discrimination, the evasive discrimination that's happening, I think I feel is uncalled for. And to be concentrating I tell people this in training that don't don't concentrate don't think about what's between my legs think about what's between my ears and i try <laughs> to make a point in saying that like four to five times in the training and continue to say that because it's true people are so fixed they're so concentrating on on our genitals and what happens to our genitals that i'm like we have a brain we breathe we live we have emotions we're human that they forget about that and so concentrate on what they think is wrong or what they think is is not is not right or 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 shouldn't be and i'm like we're we're like everybody else so for me i i that's why i like living in the state of new mexico is because of those laws and for me like i'm out and open but i also have to think about that i am also susceptible to harm because i am outspoken and i am assertive and so if i come across somebody who really doesn't like trans uh, trans person that they could bring harm to me or they could hurt me so there's well, still that back of my head. And let's talk about that, Mandy, because you mentioned being confronted. And uh, I mean, what does that look like to you when that happens? Is it just derogatory comments? Have you ever been assaulted? Um, in different situations, um, I, I feel that I've been assaulted more when I was in a young, a young, in my younger days mm -hmm. than now. Um, for me, uh, a lot of people don't even know that I'm transgender when when they talk to me or, or they meet me and stuff that when I do come out, um, there's not that much of of hostility or assault that has happened. And like, like, either fight or flight. I, I have that mentality. Like, if I need to fight, I will. And if I just need to walk away, I'll walk away. But it depends on the situation. So I, I feel that it's situational. And if like assault was going to be a part of that, then I, I I feel that I would defend myself in every way that I can, um, and stuff. So yeah, okay. and I think more of it's just um words. A lot of it's uh, the hate words or calling like faggot or queer and just ugly stuff. And you're a man, you'll never be a woman type of type of like language and stuff. And just getting the core of the emotions and stuff. And yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing, Maddie. Let's go ahead and go to the phones now where we have Jordan listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Jordan. Hey, Sean. Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great, Jordan. Thank you. I used to work for KHFM. Not, I can't plug other radio stations, but I also read the news at KUNM uh, when Marcos Martinez was the news director. Anyway, I just want to say coming from uh, piggybacking off the last caller that words do indeed matter. Um I learned the hard way a couple different times. My ex-wife's from England, but she worked at VSA. Uh, I guess it's called North Forth Arts Center now. And, uh, you know, you're kind of not conditioned, but it's okay to say, oh, that's the R-E-T-A-R-D-E-D -E -E word. You know, that's dumb. But that's just laziness is what it is. And I taught at Van Buren Middle School, proud of it, for 16 years. And I taught, oh, transgender, binary, you name it. And um, I just taught him like your last caller said, you know, it's what's between your ears, not what's between your legs. Um, that being said, it's none of my business. You know, what they want to do with their, you know, they're eighth graders. So I taught 16 years. 
Then I taught at-risk eighth graders. I taught special ed, regular ed. Um, I'm K-8 certified in regular ed, um, language arts, and social studies. And then um, K-12 special ed. I'll try to keep this as brief as possible since I tend to wander. Uh, my students always, you know, said, hey, stay on the topic. You're getting off topic. I'm like, no, I go literally like a metaphor. I go from like five rows this way, and then I come five rows back to the middle. So, And then I taught ESL. So, again, you know, what do you call it? Bias is like immensely pervasive in schools, regular life. Um, you know, Jerry Springer just passed away the other day. And oh, yeah. um, I was in L.A. I was in L.A. interviewing for the LAUSD, got the job, but I couldn't afford it. I used to live on Ridgecrest, so I had a pretty decent house, but my house in Ridgecrest would have cost, like, yeah, way too much. But <laughs> Jordan, I'm sorry. We're going to have to go to break now, but, but appreciate that call. It's Jordan listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, middle school teacher there. Folks, uh, anyone else with a question or comment, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Mother's Day, you can give all the mothers in your life truly unique gifts from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. We're getting perspective today from Native trans advocates about laws directed at trans residents. And we're finding out some of the challenges Native trans people encounter on a daily basis. If you have a question or comment for today's show, please call 1-800-99-NATIVE. We welcome all respectfully voiced perspectives. 1-800-99-NATIVE, the number to call. Let's take a call right now. Marion Another listener in Albuquerque, New Mexico, KUNM, the station. Hello, Marion. Good morning. Good morning. I love a lot of people, and some of them are trans, some of them are gay, some of them are my relatives, and traditionally we've had healers who were holy people, time immemorial, so it's, this has been in existence forever. As a small child, I have a very good friend in the fifth grade who was so kind and loving to me and others, and he was gay. I don't know if he knew or not, but everybody saw him that way, and we didn't hate on him. But um, unfortunately, he died, and, you know, I'm just expressing my thoughts in honor of him. And there's good and bad people among women, men, all over the world. And so, you know, if something happened because of one transgender or gay person, you know, it it happens among people who are not transgender, you know, like me. And um, I had to quit going to First Nation Sweat Lodge because I felt, you know, threatened and um, put down because uh, some of that anti-things were being said and um, it hurt a lot of people. So unfortunately, you know, we have to keep trying to educate people and informing others. And that's all I want to say. You know, thank you very much for the topic. Well, thank you, Marion. Really appreciate those warm words uh, that you're sharing on the air today. Again, that's Marion listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Let's uh, bring in our third guest on the show again, Montana Wilson in the state of Montana, uh, Vice Chair for Western Native Voice. And Montana, I want to thank you for your patience here in our conversation. And, and let's talk a little bit about what's happening there in the state of Montana and uh, how likely are laws like the one there in Montana to deny gender-affirming care to minors? How likely will those laws stay on the books and, and what kind of challenges do you foresee against those laws? Oh, okay. Well, I think um, giving some of your listeners some like background first before I get into answering your question, um, the state of Montana is unique compared to the, re to the rest of the states in the union because in 1972, when we redid our constitution, um, we included a provision within our constitution called individual dignity. And what individual dignity is designed to do is to um, eradicate societal discrimination in Montana. And so when you look at what, like um, a lot of people think that it's acceptable to turn to the federal courts for protection on discrimination, and it is. But they have to understand when you turn to the federal courts, <clears throat> the Constitution of the United States, especially the first like what we would know as our Bill of Rights, which are the first 10 amendments, that applies to the federal government's behavior. It doesn't apply to the state. So those protections that are found in the first 10 amendments is designed to refrain government action only. So like corporations and stuff like that can still discriminate against us as trans people, us as women, us as men on the basis of race, all that stuff. But when you look at what happened with the Civil War, then comes the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And what that is, is a design, it's designed to control state, the states of the Union so that they cannot discriminate on what the United States Constitution says. So after the Civil War, for example, that's why we're able to go and seek relief in federal court for like issues of discrimination on, um, like say, on the basis of race. But in Montana, um, in 1972, we decided to reach beyond the 14th Amendment and, and limiting it to state action. So most of, most of our protections in the United States are, just re are restricted to state action. That's why, for example, like in other states, there was um, the controversy, I believe it was in Oregon, where like if you tried to make like a cake, they could deny you on the basis of the fact that you might have been gay, mm -hmm. a wedding cake, you know. In Montana, that is prohibited. So because of the individual dignity clause in Montana, you're prohibited from discriminating against people on, cl on classes that have been enlarged. So we also, for example, and I mean enlarged, in Montana, we have a protection on the basis of culture, um, on the basis of political ideology, the basis of sex, race, religious affiliation, and all that stuff. And so we also prohibit discrimination in, the pri in private activity. So we've extended it beyond, um, for example, state, just state activity. So not only do we say the state can't discriminate against you, but we also say private actors, corporations, firms, individuals, for example, they can't discriminate against us as well. So when you look at like the law that was the bill about um, preventing this gender-affirming care for our young ones, 
we can look at that and we have grounds to challenge it in our constitution in Montana. Because in Montana, when you look at a law such as this prohibiting gender affirming care for minors because, you know, it's based in fear by these supermajority of Republicans, you know, it sucks that we have that type of disrespect playing out in front of us. But we also have to understand that there's other options available in the gov- in the toolkit for our government. And one of them is the judiciary. You know, a lot of uh, indigenous people in, um, really understand the need to go to federal court, but we also have, because of our, you know, our past relationships in the government, we all like, oh, we got to go to federal court. But I would pause and step back and say, you know, your state court, because the reality is, um, like Maddie was talking about, living down in New Mexico, like they have a really good relationship that, with their state. And unfortunately, Montana is having a turbulent relationship with people in its state. But we need to be able to protect ourselves. And the only and the ones who are making these laws are the state, not the federal government. So we need to be willing to go into our state judiciary and fight for our rights. Because if we have ignorant people in a supermajority making these types of, um, you know, as Stephanie said too, like there's not a lot of factual basis in these decision-making. It's more emotional and based in ignorance and fear that it's not an informed decision. So we have an opportunity to litigate these issues, to vindicate our rights. And because we're all humans and we all have individual dignity and it should not be violated by this behavior. Alrighty. Montana Wilson uh, up in Poplar, Montana, Vice Chair for Western Native Voice. Let's go back to the phones. We have Michelle listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Hi, Michelle. Hi. I really enjoyed hearing about um, those protective laws in Montana. That's very encouraging. Absolutely. Yeah. Michelle, I understand you're a physician. I am, and for the last almost seven years, I have been caring for transgender uh, children and adolescents. And tell us a little bit about those experiences. Well, I uh, moved here to New Mexico to escape some of those anti-trans laws, frankly. For the last several years, I was living in a very red state, in fact, the very first state to pass anti-trans laws uh, uh, to restrict uh, medical care for minors who are transgender. Um, And it made caring for our patients extremely difficult, obviously. But what was most horrifying was we saw a tremendous spike in the suicide rate, the self-harm rate, anxiety rates. I mean, these kids absolutely were suffering, and it was absolutely due to these um, horrendous and ignorant laws. And uh, the other thing that uh, became quite obvious was that these are cookie-cutter laws. These are are not being generated by the state uh, legislatures. These are coming to the legislators from um, conservative um, groups who are then shopping these laws around to see if they can find somebody to sponsor them in each state. They're they're really insidious. Right, and and Stephanie mentioned that earlier, how just boilerplate language that they're they're shopping around to these different states. So, Michelle, thank you for that call there in Albuquerque. And uh, Stephanie, I, I want to pivot back to you, if I may, and 
let's also talk about uh, non non-binary people because um, you know there are also folks that that don't identify with one sex or the other. And um, you know, what do we need to understand about those non-binary people in these issues like bathrooms and sports and state-issued identification and et cetera? The thing about on for folks that are non-binary. When we approach these, there are some that will be directly impacted by them and others that won't be, uh, depending upon how they move in this world. Uh, so sometimes we might use the terms transmasculine or transfeminine in re- reference to non-binary people uh, because they lean one way or another, although they may not fully identify that way. And so we see those things. But oftentimes the, the, the labeling that goes through this, and I just did air quotes and I know no one can see me on radio, but uh, <laughs> the, it, it, it doesn't allow for that, you know, uh, in Kansas, our, our gender markers on our driver's license are only M or F, and I sponsored legislation to add the marker of X specifically for the 8,000 or so Kansans that identify as non-binary, uh, you know, and yet it didn't go anywhere. Matter of fact, the two years that I served, they heard absolutely zero of any pro-LGBTQ legislation. We couldn't even get it into a committee hearing. But the thing is on, on those things, though, is that other states have offered the gender marker of X. Other states are offering that uh, a non-gender on birth certificate. And so what happens then when those people relocate and we're talking about you know equal protections under the law, regardless of where you go from state to state, as was mentioned earlier by Montana, if we're talking about the 14th Amendment, what happens then for those folks who have been identified in Washington as the gender marker of X and then they move to Texas? Uh, you know, and their their birth certificate says X and everything else. Um, this has not been thought through, okay. and it, it's almost as if they, those people don't exist. You know, but we know nature teaches us that we don't live in a binary system. We live in a spectrum. Anybody who's mm-hmm. ever seen, we have deer in our neighborhood that are here all the time, and we will see does with antlers. That's part of the system. That's part of how nature works. We are not necessarily A or B. We're A through Z and everything in between. Thank you, Stephanie. And I'd like to go back to Montana now. And some of these ID issues uh, that Stephanie's describing, Montana, are you seeing the same things in your state? Yeah, I think I think we are because um, you're seeing a bunch of issues that people don't understand about because we're not talking about them. Um, especially around like being non-binary, like uh, your question to Stephanie, we're seeing a lot of people who are essentially just being educated by Fox News about these issues. And so they're believing what is being told to them and taking what is being told to them on news as the gospel instead of really trying to dig down into it and trying to understand that these people are human too. And Montana, like for somebody listening right now, who you describe that the, the, somebody who is educated by Fox News, like what would you say to them? Somebody right now who's who's educated by Fox News, and and they're listening to the show today, and they're hearing these perspectives, and maybe these are perspectives that they've never heard before, and 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 they're interested, and they're intrigued, and and they want to reach out, and they want to learn more. How do they do that? How do they learn more and, and educate themselves better and become more informed? about these issues that we're talking about today with regard to transgender and non-binary and other types of people that don't just fall into that typical mold of male or female. 
Right. That's a good question because, like, you know, we have people who we've, I've met that have been like, oh, I'm scared to ask about this. Well, you know, we have a very powerful search engine on our tips, Google, for example. We have a lot of nonprofits who do work in this area. You know, we have pride foundations in almost every state that work in these areas. Um, we have people who are uh, organizations that help assist parents, like PFLAG organizations that help assist parents understanding these, um, you know, their children's identity. So, like, there's a variety of different things that you need to do to uh, to really educate yourself. Because the real thing that you should look at is if something, someone's telling me something and it's causing, like, fear or anger or hatred into it, into, like, the way these people are behaving, you know, that might, yeah, that's cool. But you have to also understand, like, you need to stop, pause, and really evaluate, like, why am I feeling this way? Because at the end of the day, these these news corporations that are telling you about this and trying to influence you, they are operating in a market-based economy. Mm-hmm. So what they are doing is they don't care what the message is. And we, and we saw that with the Fox News Dominion lawsuit. They lied through their teeth to, to uh, people about Dominion voting systems. They didn't care. What they wanted to do was sell you a narrative to, ter- to tune you in because at the end of the day, what these people are interested in is money. They're not interested in informing you. They're not interested in spreading love or information. They're interested in generating revenue. And that's what you are. You are the revenue source. So if you're going to be tuning in and believing all this stuff, then like you're playing in to them making money. So you're just nothing more than a pawn in this whole thing, and you're an unknowing pawn because you didn't take the time to really understand the full argument. You allowed someone to tell you what is going on instead of interrogating it for yourself. And that is the problem because that's how our democracy falls apart. Well, we are going to have to wrap up our show today. It's been a really, really insightful conversation. Big thanks to our three guests today, Maddie Jim, Stephanie Byers, and Montana Wilson for a really thought-provoking dialogue on Native trans issues. We are back again tomorrow with a show on the possibility that the Boy Scouts of America might dispense with its longtime appropriation of Native dances and imagery. Hope you'll join us. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to him that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.